That's why we're starting in Luke today. Um, hospitality, let me just tell you broadly. Now this is on, I'm speaking in a broad way. Because I know as soon as I say the word hospitality, you're thinking having people over for dinner, right? I mean, that's what I think, having people over for dinner. And that is what it means. That is hospitality, by the way. But it also means just welcoming others into your life, sharing your life with others. That is the broadest sense of the term as you look it up in the Bible. It just means to share our lives deeply with other people, okay? And that could be strangers, outsiders, foreigners, It could be family. It could be community. And it's tough. I mean, hospitality becomes very difficult to some of us. It does me. Some of us, we have a harder time. Some of us, we have a difficult time sharing our lives with outsiders, people we don't know very well. Right. So, a good example. I'll give you a big pet peeve of mine, since you asked what my biggest pet peeves were. Anytime I'm in like a conference setting or a class setting or a service of some kind or a clinic, inevitably the teacher, whether it's a professor, pastor, whatever, they'll get to this poignant thought, this big provocative thought that just occurred to them as as they're teaching. And they'll stop and they'll say, you know what, let's all just split up into groups of three or four and discuss that point and how you feel about it. Man, I hate that worse than anything in the world. I mean, I'll probably never do that to you. Kevin might. But I probably will never do that to you. Okay? Because I can't stand that. I can't stand. There's something about getting in little groups of three or four and sharing my heart with people I don't know. I'm just not all that excited about. You know what I'm saying? I'm thinking, man, you're teaching. I was learning. Things were going good. You're putting it on a whiteboard. I'm throwing it in a notebook. Everything was going good. And then you screwed it up by saying break up into groups of three or four. I can't stand it. Y'all are all wondering how I became a pastor, aren't you? It's not that I don't like people. And I like small talk. I just don't like sharing my life openly with people I don't know very well. But even in community, even with family, even with people that we know and love, isn't it still difficult to share our life to a very, very deep, deep degree? Right? It's still difficult. There's this book um, called Bowling Alone that Robert Putnam wrote. And he reveals in his research in this book that over the last three decades, there's been a 45% decrease in entertaining friends and homes. Think about that. 30 years. It's been half of what it was 30 years ago as far as how we invite others into our life and share our lives with people. The average time for the meal in an American household today is less than 20 minutes. And the average family that even eats together is only doing it two to three times a week. Right? In fact, if you look at the way custom homes are starting to be built, um, you'll see custom builders making homes like this, and you'll see there's a lot of input going into how people want their homes built. You're starting to see this upsurge of homes being built without dining rooms because we just like to protect ourselves a little bit from hospitality. There's something in us as a people that really don't want to share our lives with others. Right? We would much rather commercialize it or institute it like at a Starbucks or a Panera where we can go somewhere and we can share our lives but not too much. We can go but only when it's convenient for our schedule. We're actually commercializing what hospitality looks like a little bit. That's kind of the trend we're starting to see in our culture. So we felt like, me and John felt like this would be a good time of year to talk about this because we're headed into a time of year where there's a lot of meals right family friends I mean our missional communities and we eat together every week it's very timely for us right 
But I will tell you, just in putting this together and looking at the Bible texts that we'll be going through, looking at Jesus' actions, I have to say that this wrecks me a little bit because I've not arrived in hospitality. This is very, very difficult. It's a difficult teaching for me. But I do recognize, and the Bible clearly teaches, that hospitality, welcoming outsiders, making space in our lives for people, is one of the main motors behind being a missionary. It's one of the main motors behind being on mission. It's simply more. Hospitality is more than meeting with people in a detached, antiseptic venue where it doesn't really touch your life very much. It's actually welcoming the world, the culture at large, into your life, into your schedule, into your comfort zone, into your finances. It's hard. It requires a very deep vulnerability, as we're going to see. This is what Tim Chester says about hospitality. This is the most useful and helpful definition I've been able to find. I'm getting this out of a book he wrote called A Meal with Jesus. It's a very good book. He says this, hospitality, and you want to hear these five points. Hospitality involves welcoming, creating space, listening, paying attention, and providing. Big thing. Let's say it again. Welcoming, creating space, listening, paying attention, and providing. He says that mission isn't something I can clock out from at the end of the day. The hospitality to which Jesus calls us can't be institutionalized in programs and in projects. Jesus challenges us to take mission home. Don't start a hospitality ministry in your church. Open your home. That's what he says. That's what I agree with. You know, my parents, they came to visit... Really, they came to visit the grandkids. We just, they, they, they were obligated to visit us because we actually house and feed them. So whenever they're hanging out with us, we started talking about how things are going on in their universe. And my parents are retired and they live in Fort Worth. And they bought this nice house. It's a nice house enough to have a guest house, okay? About 30, 40 yards off of the house is a guest house. And when they bought this property, they had the idea of we're going to use that guest house for visiting pastors, traveling pastors, missionaries, family, friends, things like that. They're, they're hosting people, right? It's a hospitality to them. In fact, they just had a family leave that had lived there for six months, an overseas missionary family. There was like a ton of them, a bunch of kids, and they lived there for six months rent-free. It's just a gift to them, right? Well, they're gone. And my parents talked about resetting the house, getting it ready for the next family, the next pastor or or whatever. And they started talking about all the things they had to do to get the house caught up. And changing the carpet was one of them. And I said, why would you have to change the carpet? I was just there. It was like brand new carpet. It's great carpet. And my mom said, because there was a stain of grape juice about this big right in the middle of the living room. So the carpet's coming out. It looks horrible, right? That's hospitality though, isn't it? I mean, she gets it a little bit. I mean, there's always going to be a grape juice stain, right? I mean, if it's not on your carpet, it's going to be in your schedule. Because hospitality, it's always going to be at a very, very inconvenient time for you, isn't it? I mean, you know, that's why people don't buy pickup trucks, right? (laughs) Because someone always has to move. And you're going to get called. That's how it works. Or it's going to be a grape juice stain in your comfort zone. We all have those too, right? I do. Or your checkbook because hospitality costs money. It costs money to do it. It's always going to be something. The point is, the point I want you to get today, and the point we're going to be unpacking as this series goes on, is hospitality has got a deep cost to it. The price tag is rich to hospitality. But, but... 
The gospel is God's hospitality to you and to me. And the cost on that, the price tag on that, was very rich. God is highly hospitable to you and me. God's hospitality to you and to me is to send Jesus the God-man to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death, to be resurrected, to go up and to what? Make a place for us. To make a place for us. To make us welcome. To provide for us. To listen deeply. All the things that Chester said. That's what God is doing for you and me now. That is His hospitality to mankind. That's the main point. Paul talks about it a little bit. I'm going to run through this real fast. In fact, these aren't even going to be up on the screen. Paul says to contribute to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality. That's in Romans. He's saying so. He's talking about the church. Look for, look for ways to be hospitable to each other, he says. Seek to show hospitality. Look for ways. Jump in. Look for ways to welcome people. Make space. Listen. Pay attention. Provide. All of those things. And then Peter says, show hospitality to one another, church again, community, without grumbling. Right? Why would they have to say this? Why are they having to tell their readers to do this? To look intently for ways to be hospitable and to do it without grumbling. Because it's easy to not do it and it's easy to grumble. And we need to be reminded. Right? Because there's always going to be grape juice. There's always going to be a stain and you're always going to want to grumble. I do. We're always going to want to grumble. It's difficult. Then the writer of Hebrews says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. We've all heard this verse. For thereby some have entertained angels totally unaware. Right? Showing hospitality to strangers. Now that's not community. That's not tight-knit family. That's people that aren't going to be here this morning. That's 84% of Knoxville. Right? At least 84% of Knoxville. And we actually have some really, really good Polaroids of this happening in the Bible. Nehemiah is one of my favorite examples of all hospitality in the Bible. And we actually taught through this a few months ago. We taught through the entire book of Nehemiah. But we did get to the one place in Nehemiah where he was showing hospitality by giving up a salary that was due him, a governor's salary, which was a lot. Governors got paid back then, I guess. And he actually funded the meal for 150 of his laborers for 12 years. Every day. Every day he would feed 100 150 people for 12 years because he wanted them to be able to focus on the wall. Get the wall built. Get the wall built. Don't go get a second job. Get the wall built. So as he did this, we did the math a few months ago roughly on what this could have cost today, right? Because there was wine mixed into the whole deal and we just kind of looked at the way the food was. Give or take a million bucks. (laughs) You know it's rough math when you're giving or taking a million bucks. Give or take a million bucks is about $10 million for him to do that to write a check and pay for everyone's food. That was expensive. You know what was even more expensive than that? Is every day him coming home from work, exhausted, walking the same two and a half mile perimeter. I mean, he is not, he's a governor. He was a cupbearer for the king. And now he's this construction supervisor, you know, uber governor out of nowhere. And so he's exhausted at the end of that. You know he was and people were trying to kill him. None of us have had hard days like that. People are trying to kill him. Kill him. So he goes home. He's tired. He's fatigued. Emotionally, he's ripped apart. Opens the door. And you know what? He's thinking the same thing when he gets to the doorknob that you and I think whenever we get to the doorknob of our house or whenever we get in our car after a very difficult day. I want a bucket of wings. I want to watch a game. And I want to go to bed. You know what I'm saying? And I, the least amount of people in my life today, the better. That's what I'm thinking. I just want to be alone. 
He walks in the door, opens it up, 150 people there. Like magic, every day. Hey, Nehemiah, I got some theological questions for you. Nehemiah, I got some complaints for you. I got a new joke I'm trying out. Whatever. I mean, just exhausting, stinky, loud people every day for 12 years. Now, what do you think was harder to do? Write the check for that or walk in your living room to do that every time? We took a poll in our missional community two weeks ago. Would it be easier for you to give away your money or give away your time to be on God's mission? We were split, not right down the middle, but we were split. We found out that more people would be much more willing to get rid of their money than they would be their time. Right? That's what we found out. The thing is, is it takes both. You know, our missional community is about to endeavor on a pretty big, thorough, requiring mission. You know, as we're adopting a single mother and kids. As we do that, it's going to cost a lot of money and a lot of time. And none of it will be convenient for us. None of it will be. But that's what it takes to be on God's mission. We have another beautiful Polaroid. And that's in the picture of God being hospitable to a new nation. Right, So now in this case, you have Israel as a very, very young nation. God does something really cool as a host, frees this people that he desires and loves out of underneath the control of the worst slave master in the, in the picture of Egypt. Egypt was a taskmaster over Israel. He pulls them out, breaks them free, springs them forth from slavery, ushers them towards the Red Sea, enriching them in gold on the way. They get right up to the Red Sea. Wow, there's an ocean there. And also behind them is thundering down upon them Pharaoh with his army. Doesn't make God insecure though. He's totally secure. So he cracks open the Red Sea, helps his people ride on across, collapses the Red Sea right against that army again. They're on the other side, a brand new nation. That's when Israel started as a nation. A brand new nation, which is a beautiful picture to you and me of a new life, right? That's a baptismal picture for us. I'll say it that way. Yet they get to the other side Where God has what? Made a place for them? Listened intently to their cries? Paid attention? Provided? All of those things that we just read that Chester said. God did all of those things. And they said, we need food. Oh yeah, we were in such a hurry, we don't have any food. How are we going to feed this many people? God, totally not insecure, not intimidated, says, I'll just drop it from the sky. We'll just do that. How about manna? So manna starts coming from the sky every day, which is a light description of this in the Bible. What we do know is it had the nutritional value to keep a monstrous people alive for a long time. So this manna is dropping from the sky. They go out and pick it up. The thing about manna is, is you can't hoard a bunch, right? It, it actually goes bad that night. You can only pick enough that day to keep you and your family alive that day, which is also another picture for you and me that we don't live off of yesterday's revelation. We don't live off of yesterday's food from God, but we go afresh every day to God for his bread. All right, That's just a picture, a broad picture. But in this, they get this and they complain. Here you have this great host, God being incredibly hospitable, and you have a complaining guest. It's another picture. Now this didn't cost Moses any money, and it didn't cost Moses any time, but emotionally, I, bet, I mean, you could see it in the text, he's ready to tap out several times. Right? Moses was God's ambassador to those people. And that's how they responded to the hospitality of God. We have a really, really, really good portrait of this. And this is where I had you turn in Luke 9. So look at Luke 9. This is the last passage I wanted to look at on this. This is the one that's going to do the lifting for us. Luke 9. It says, On their return, 
the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and hear this, and he welcomed them. Because that's what a good host does when he's being hospitable. And he welcomed them. And he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. You know, it's interesting. Whenever we read the story of the 5,000 being fed, we usually blow right over that. He wasn't just feeding people. He was healing people. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we're here and where? A desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And so that's just men. That's not counting women and children. So you do the math. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in a groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to the heaven and he said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. So what we have here is something we've heard since we were little kids. The feeding of the 5,000, right? Remember, hospitality involves welcoming, which he did, creating space, which he did, listening, paying attention, and providing. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus being hospitable to a drove of people, to a lot of people. So Luke, are you saying that we need to start cooking for strangers? I mean, is that what you're saying? We just need to start having people over and... That might be part of it, but I want you to think a lot bigger than that. Because we're a people and a culture that live in constant need. I mean constant need. We always have need. We always feel unsatisfied. We do. I mean, we're people with full bellies and empty souls. Needy, needy souls. These people that follow Jesus, they needed far more than just sandwiches and fish sticks or whatever. I mean, they needed more than just to be fed, understand. I mean, they could have just stayed at home and not followed them out there. They're not going to follow them all the way out to a desolate place just for food. What they needed was to be fed. I mean, really fed. I mean, to have that empty soul nurtured. To have that neediness met. To be provided for. And that inside, that part that can never really ever drink deep of satisfaction. That's what they needed. That's what they wanted. That's why they followed him. I mean, I don't know. They must have seen him do something or heard him say something or witnessed some miracle. Something must have happened where they said, that is what I need. That is starting to really meet that need. If what could happen for that person could happen for me. If what he said could be true for me, that is why they followed him out there. That's why that happened. Listen, people are constantly, today, in our culture, in our city... People are very, very unsatisfied, very empty, very, very needy. For you to be hospitable is way more than just feeding them food in your house. You have to get that down. When it comes to hospitality, it is far more than feeding people in your house. It is meeting those internal needs too. Making space, listening, listening deeply, providing. It's all of those things. So think bigger. Think much bigger. 
Also, what I really like in this passage, and I don't know if any of y'all have ever seen this in this passage, um, this was a very, very key moment in Jesus' ministry where he was revealing who he was. Right? Every once in a while you'll see this where he jerks back the curtain and says, right, this is who I am. This is who I am. And a lot of people, light bulbs will go on and they would see it. Oh my goodness. This is who Jesus really is. This is one of them. Right? You see, the people he was leading out there in the wilderness, the 5,000 people, they would have known that story we just rehearsed real fast in 60 seconds of Moses and the nation and the Exodus and the Red Sea. They would have known that so well. I mean, down to the last detail. Because it was more than just a story for them. It was part of their national identity. It was part of who they were. The kiddies knew it. Everybody knew it. Jesus knew that they knew it. Jesus grew up hearing it. Right? This was a moment where God was showing that Jesus was the better Moses. Hear this. Jesus was the better Moses. Leading a better people away from a worse taskmaster towards a better promised land. It was a grander exodus. This was Jesus leading, not a better people like better in quality, but grander in scope. Not just one nation into a promised land, but all nations into a promised land. Jesus was saying, this, is, this was all about me. They would have been thinking as they sat in groups of 50, this is a lot like the manna that came from heaven. This is a lot like what was provided to our forefathers. Jesus knew this. He knew that there was a better land he was leading them to, a better exodus. He actually said, I'm the better manna. This is what it says in John 6.30. You don't have to turn there because he's going to throw it up on the screen. Do you have it? This is Jesus. Or no, this is the Pharisees and the critics um, beforehand. They said, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. This is huge. This was cataclysmic to the hearers. He said, you think your forefathers ate and were satisfied? I am the bread of life. I am the one that when you come to me, you will never hunger and thirst again. That was talking about me. The manna was a picture of me. Moses is just a picture of me. All of these are neon signposts pointing to, to me in this moment right now. I mean, his hospitality, God's hospitality through Jesus to the 5,000 was pointing backward. Pointing backward to a time when God was hospitable and welcomed the nation. Making them a place, making it ready for them. I'll tell you another unique thing about this passage is it was also pointing forward. Jesus was not always just pointing back to the hospitality that God showed in the wilderness. He was pointing forward as well. This is what it says in Isaiah 25. This is almost 800 years earlier, of course. But um, Isaiah, there you go. It says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, or, or of rich food full of marrow. That doesn't even sound good to me. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I guess it was good. Of aged wine, well refined. 
And he will swallow up on this mountain that covering that is cast over all peoples. And he's vague there, but we all know what he's talking about. That covering, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited on Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And in other parts of the Bible, it talks about this banquet being laid open for us. Listen, there's going to be a better feast coming. There's going to be a better feast coming. And it's not in a wilderness like it was with Israel. And it's not going to be in a desolate place like it was with the 5,000. It's going to be sitting across the table with the King of Kings. God is saying, through this moment, in front of the 5,000, I am providing for you. There's going to come a time where I'm going to deeply provide for you. I've made space for you and welcomed you. But there's going to be a place and a time where you're not going to have anything to worry about. No pain, no tension, no tears, no death. Right? Listen, this is a part of the gospel we need to preach. It's very typical. And listen, we have a gospel-fluent church. We really do. And I'm starting to see it more and more. I'm starting to see a lot of people become a lot more fluent in how the gospel sounds. They're preaching it to their wives. They're preaching it to themselves. They're starting to see their sin and know what the gospel says to it. It's been exciting for me to see that. It's One of the things that you start to see in people that are growing in their gospel fluency is they will usually stop with the empty tomb. The bloody cross and the empty tomb are cornerstones to who we are as Christians. That's true. We wouldn't be Christians if it wasn't for either one of those two things. Bloody cross, empty tomb. But Jesus rose again, went up to the right hand of our Father, and is what? Making a place for us. He's making... Why is that important? Why, Luke, why do you have to have all of that? I mean, that's just kind of understood, right? Whenever you're telling people in the community or we're talking to each other about it, it is understood. But listen, it, that is the part of the gospel that really gives hope. Think about it. I mean, it just buries hope in the heart of people. I mean, it's great news that Jesus saved us from our sin and death. It is great news. that it, When I found out what it really meant to be justified before the eyes of God, and that His Holy Spirit would come and sanctify me, I mean, that is good news. But let me tell you, there will be a day. There will be a day when you will not have depression any longer. I just want you to think about that for a second. Some of you are depressed. Think about waking up one morning and having no depression, no anxiety. No addictions, no sadness, no pain, no heartbreaks, none of this. It's gone. It's swallowed up. It's forever gone. Think about that. You know who need to hear that? There's a whole city out there that needs to hear that. That's part of the gospel. Man, it's good news. I mean, right now my back hurts. I'm preaching to you my back hurts. It's not going to hurt. One day it won't hurt. I won't have contacts anymore. Won't have moles. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Y'all all all have moles. Don't act like you don't. (laughs) It's good news. In the meantime, before we get to that place, we have hospitality now. We have hospitality. We have mission to a world where grape juice and grumbling and retreat and pain and cost and sacrifice, it is all there and it is all a picture of the cross. It is all a beautiful picture of the cross, which was deep sacrifice, which was deep pain. I'm going to explain that here in a minute. I want to talk real quick before we finish up. 
I want to hit the two big things, hospitality, what we see in the Bible, what it could really mean, how we can see it a little bit better. There's hospitality to a culture, like what, what uh, the author of Hebrews was talking about, meeting strangers with hospitality, and then there's us meeting each other with hospitality. All right. So when, when we look at hospitality in mission, on God's mission, think of the picture of reconciling enemies together in order to make friends. That's actually what the word reconciliation means. It's nuancing the fact that enemies or strangers can become friends. Okay. So anytime you read that in the Bible, that's what it's nuancing. Think... And this is what the Jews would have understood. The kings of old, right? whenever they had beefs with each other, one of the ways, one of the primary ways that they would get treaties made and peace satisfied is by sharing a meal together. By having a meal together. That's one of the things that they would do. Now over a different bread, a broken bread, and over a different wine, spilt wine, spilt blood for us, we have a different king reconciling with us. This is really what communion's about, if you think about it, which we're going to talk about in a second. We have a different king looking across the table from us and saying, I'm going to make you a friend of mine. We are enemies, but we won't be here in a minute because I'm going to rescue you. With... And, and the beautiful thing about it is you have nothing to do with it. You have nothing to do with it. There's no place where you can say, well, I mean, I'm a pretty good person, so I've earned your favor and grace, right? Now that we're sitting across the table from each other. He says, you have nothing to do with it. My grace is going to rescue you. I love you just because you're you. Not because of anything you've done, thought, or even conceived of. I love you because you're you. I'm giving you grace because it's you and I want to. You're sitting across from a king that since you were born, your sin and your sinner state has declared war against. And he's reconciling you over a meal. That meal is a broken body and a spilled blood. That's what that means. That's what the communion points to. So, on mission, when we dine, when we meet, when we share our lives, when we open up and welcome and make place and provide for the people of the culture, the people far from Christ, the people not even interested in Christ, the people still skeptical, the people kind of kicking tires on the whole thing. Whenever you do that... As an ambassador of God, as you show hospitality, you're echoing the gospel. You're echoing that. I'm meeting with you, sharing my time and my schedule with you, all in an attempt to show you what God has done with me. He shared his life with me. Listen, whenever you fail to do this, whenever you fail to be hospitable, share your life, your schedule, your finances, whenever you fail to do that, you might be preaching a gospel that is not altogether very beautiful. And he might be painting a picture of God that is not altogether very correct. That's how important this is. This is why in the Bible, if you look, elders, pastors, look in Timothy and Titus, you couldn't even be a pastor unless you were hospitable. That'd take you right out. You, you're not even, you, you couldn't even be a pastor of a church, an elder, a leader of any kind, if you were not hospitable. It's a gospel mark on our life. I mean, this is why Jesus was so refreshing to people. I mean, you have the prostitutes, the tax collectors. You have all the people that were just, you know, hopping bars every night. I mean, were the Pharisees very hospitable to them? Did they listen? Did they make space? Did they welcome them? Did they provide? No, they didn't. But guess who did? Jesus did. Jesus came and He made a place. He made space. He made time. He listened intently. He provided. He met their needs. Luke, how do you know? Because they called him a drunkard. They called him someone who abused wine. They called him someone who was a glutton. 
They didn't do that because he ate a lot and he drank a lot. They did that because of the people he hung out with all the time. It stained his reputation. Listen, for me, I will tell you, it's very easy for me, and maybe you're like me, to make space for people, welcome them into my life, provide, listen deeply, until I get tired. Right? Until it hurts too much. You see, I have parameters. It's not like I have them listed in my head, but I know when one of them's been met. Right? Someone's talking too long, they're costing me too much, it's in my schedule at a certain point where I didn't want it, and I just want to hit the exit ramp as fast as possible. Right? That's what I want to do. As I read these passages, I feel like God is showing me that might, that exit point might be where hospitality for me begins, where it really deeply costs, where there's a real deep, deep, deep cost to it. That's what it feels like to me. Because when I welcome deeply, I show and I paint a picture of a God who what? Welcomes deeply. Right? When I create space deeply, I paint a picture of God with my life, and you do too, that creates space very deeply. When I listen, when I pay attention, who am I painting a picture of? A God who's listening, who's very attentive to the matters of your heart. Small and as trivial as you might think they are, He's very attentive. And that's what you're painting a picture of. As I provide deeply, as we provide deeply, we paint a picture of a God who deeply, 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 deeply provides at a heartbreaking cost. Because that's what He did through Christ. Do you see your hospitality paints either a very good gospel demonstration or a very poor gospel demonstration. It does. Let's look at community real fast. I'm flying through this. Community, whenever we think of hospitality, I want to switch back and forth between how we handle each other and sharing our lives in the communion. Because what it does is it reconciles infighting, which there is a lot. There's a lot of infighting, right? Communion is a beautiful table. We'll just use that as an example. Because it is a table under a cross and what it represents. As the Puritans used to say, it's the table under the tree. Because it's the table you can't carry tension into. You can't do it. You can't carry strife into that moment of communion. This is what Tim Chester says later on. He says, We proclaim his death by eating together as a reconciled community through the cross. The cross humbles us all as we see the extent of sin, and the cross exalts us all as we're welcomed into God's family. And then he says this, the family that eats together stays together. Generous hospitality leads to reconciliation. It expresses forgiveness. Unresolved conflict cannot be ignored when we gather around the meal table. Some of you know that to be true, right? You can't eat in silence, he says, without realizing there's an issue to address. Hospitality can be a kind of sacrament of forgiveness. Sacrament of forgiveness. Think about it. Listen, I'm going to bring the communion back in again. If you're struggling with someone, you're bitter, you have an offense with somebody in the church, even me, a lot of you are going to have an offense with me over time, you know, if you haven't already, if you don't now. But if you have any kind of bitterness or offense, Don't carry that into the table. You don't want to do that. You don't want to carry that strife into a communion moment. Don't eat something that represents forgiveness 
if you're not levying forgiveness towards somebody else, right? Don't eat something that represents grace visiting outsiders if you're not able to extend grace to someone who's outside you. That's the picture of communion. Don't do it. Luke, are you saying I can't take communion today? I'm saying you could take it all day long. Forgive first. Forgive. Extend grace. Reconcile. That's the picture of communion for us. Bring unity to the table. Don't bring tension. Don't bring discord. Don't do that. It's a beautiful opportunity to work through the issues with somebody. As Jeremy said before the service, we get plenty of time to do that. You know, during all of the worship set right after this. We get plenty of time to do that. It's a great opportunity. And listen, if you... If you're having a beef with somebody else and they know about it and it's kind of a two-way beef, you know how you know how sometimes someone can offend you and they have no idea. That's different. And sometimes you're offending each other and you really don't give a rip. You just <laughs> you know that you're right and they're wrong and they think they're right and you're wrong. Again, a beautiful opportunity to go up and grab them and say, "Look, you've offended me, but I've offended God. You sinned against me, but I've sinned against God." What could we possibly do to each other that could even come to measure or amount to what we have done to God Himself? Yet He gives us grace. I give you grace. I forgive you. I forgive you too. And so as you guys take the communion, a pictorial broken body and spilt blood, as you do that, you are imaging the gospel as you're taking a pictorial part of the gospel. That's the whole idea behind communion. Reconciling enemies to be friends. It's a picture for us. Listen, if you want to do church well, I don't mean come to church well. I mean do church well. If you want to do church well, you've got to bring hospitality with you. Leave unforgiveness in the casket with the dead version of you. Just leave it there. You have to do hospitality well. I mean, soon we're going to be taking a communion together to reconcile tension, maybe one with each other. Maybe we're going to be taking communion to memorialize to, in thanksgiving out of what God has done for us on the cross. But understand it's pointing forward to what? A better meal. A better banquet. The one waiting for us. Yet a God, again, God has created space for us. He's welcoming us. He's creating a banquet table for you and me right now. And in that table, there will be no tension. Be no offense. No bitterness. Listen, as I preach this, and I, pr- I should probably say this a lot more often than I do. I don't say this as often. And it's odd, because this is really what we stand for as a church. Your performance in this, I've just laid out a heavy imperative. The heavy imperative is to be more hospitable because it's a gospel image. right? That's the ultimate thing. If you fail in this, if you fail, God loves you the same, and He cannot possibly love you any more than He does now. If you are excellent in hospitality and you're just the most hospitable thing in the world, you're writing books and everyone's buying them, right? And if that's you, God cannot love you any more than He loves you now. Your ability or inability to be hospitable does not gain or lose you any favor in God's eyes. You are heavily favored. So whenever you hear a message like this, don't think the thrust is go and be more hospitable so God blesses you more and gives you favor. Think go and be more hospitable because God was hospitable to you and you get to echo an image and do it all in Thanksgiving. That way it takes the yoke right off. No performance. There's no performance in it for you.
It takes the yoke right off your shoulders. You get to do something very beautiful because something very beautiful was done for you. That's, that's it. So let me ask you some questions. I'm going to go ahead and bring the team up. Where's the team at? You guys can go ahead and come on up. And I'm going to ask you some questions here as they're getting set up. And as we go into the time of communion, and, and I say this every week, but I can kind of underscore it this week. Whenever we have worship, I will have three or four songs. Feel free to go over with your wife, with someone in your community. You can go by yourself if you want. Um, with your roommate, with family, and take communion together. But listen, seize this opportunity. If there's someone you're in strife with, seize this opportunity to get right, to forgive. So you're not just taking a gospel and it just doesn't mean anything. That's very pharisaical. But to actually live the gospel to actually do it. Not just take something that says forgiveness all over it, but to actually forgive. It's a beautiful opportunity to do that. So let me ask you some questions that you can carry into this time of wrestling with God. Are you preaching, and I'm asking myself this too, are we preaching God's hospitality to mankind, yet our lives aren't very hospitable to match what we're preaching? Think about that. Think about it carefully before you answer, too. It's easy to preach how good God is and how sacrificial and how much He made space and provides for. It's easy to preach that because it's such good news. But are we living it? Or is our demonstration going in an opposite direction of our proclamation? Are you preaching one thing and then living another as regards hospitality? Why are you doing that? What is it that's gripping you so much? Is it the cost? Is it the time? Is it the emotions? All of those are understandable. I I suffer from all three, right? All of those are understandable. Which is it for you? Which has a grab of your heart that is keeping you from being more of a gospel image in your hospitality to each other and to the lost world? That I want you to think about. Also, how does your gospel message look ahead? Whenever you preach the gospel to your friends, your family, to each other, does it look ahead? Does it have a place where God has wiped away everything that sin has ever done? Where everything evil has been made not true anymore? Does your gospel go that far? Hey, listen, whenever you preach the gospel to yourself, do you do that? I have to do that. It resets everything for me. It gives me such a better perspective. I'm like, man, my heart is heavy right now. I've got all these hard situations and I just don't feel equipped to deal with them, but... Man, God, as you draw me through this, as your Holy Spirit leads me, one thing I do know is there will be a day when I won't have any of this to contend with because you will show me at that time how you've already contended for all of it. You're such a brilliant God. Do you preach it to yourself? And then let me ask you this. What does communion mean to you? What does it mean? As soon as I say the word communion... What's the first thing that comes into your mind? Some of you are Catholic. Some of you grew up Southern Baptist. Some of you are going to have different images come up from how you grew up. Some of you are not really grew up close to this, so it doesn't. it's kind of strange to you. It's like wine. It's grape juice because we're on a school property. But grape juice and bread, and you're like, yeah, I don't really get that. A little strange. It's like food, like in a service, but not like enough to make you full. It's just kind of there, you know? What does it mean? Will you allow God to reset your understanding of what communion is? That it is a picture of God reconciling you, who were an enemy at one time, to be a friend. And that that was done over a broken body and spilt blood, which is what we're memorializing in the communion. Are you able to do that? Are you able to do that?